Let's pray together. Uh, Father, that is my testimony. It's the testimony of every believer in this room. Uh, I was dead and I was lost, uh, but I was captured by the cross. Spirit of the living God awoke a love in me. God, only you can do that. With man, it's impossible, but with you, all things are possible. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, the fame of your great name would spread to the nations, would saturate our city, and that even now as the team is out talking to people about your son, Lord, that they would find open and receptive hearts that you have already drawn to yourself. Lord, we pray for our nation this morning. We pray for its leaders, as many of us read uh, just this week in our devotional, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it like a river, whichever way he chooses. Lord, I pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders back to you. Lord, we have seen in the book of Daniel that even pagan kings can be bent and molded for your purposes and plan. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would bend us, that you would break us, God, that you would bring revival to our nation. We asked that you would give us as believers wisdom about how to navigate life through uh, the age that we find ourselves in. Lord, help us know when we're supposed to serve in silence. And Lord, help us know when we need to say, I will not bow. And God, then give us the courage to follow through on those words. Lord, we pray for our church. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. God, that uh, you would even use the message this morning that their hearts, that my heart would be captive to the word of God, that we would take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That as we read the Bible this year or listen to it through the Dwell app, Lord, that as we hear things that, we don't like or bother us or expose our sin that we would lovingly and willingly place that under the authority, under the lordship of your son, that we would joyfully bow. Lord, we pray for Pastor Michael and Becky Hall this morning as they're dealing with the loss of Becky's father. 101 years of life Lord, we thank you for his legacy of faithfulness, how he served you, how he left a mark on his family and on his community, and we ask your comfort for Becky and Michael and the rest as they deal with this. And Lord, now we pray for your word as it is preached. Lord, that beyond the ability of a human communicator, that your spirit would work in the hearts of everyone here, bring comfort where it's needed, bring challenge where it's needed, bring conviction where it's needed. Only you can do that, but we trust you to do your work this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, hey, how you doing? Good to see y'all. 
Hey, we're in the uh, third week of our series through the book of Daniel that we're calling Stand Firm. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter three, and we find ourselves in some very familiar territory. You see, there's a few Old Testament stories that most people kind of know of. They may not know the whole story, but they kind of heard it. They've heard the title, Noah and the Ark, right? David and Goliath, Jonah and the great fish, Daniel in the lion's den, and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. You see, this book that we're studying, uh, uh, and, and in particular this story this morning, will show us how to live by conviction instead of compromise. It'll show us how to respond in this broken world with confidence instead of cowardice. It's kind of like a, a last day's, uh, you know, training manual. Like, how do we get through the 21st century? How do we live until the appearance of our Christ, of, of, of Christ? Just follow the training manual. Now, remember the theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. Like God alone is the hero of this book. He is the one who uh, whose will can never be thwarted. Like he's the one whose counsel will stand. And so the overall theme of the book is we can stand firm because God's God stands firm. God's word stands firm. God's purposes and plan stands firm because God has spoken and he will do it. We can stand firm, not because we're awesome, but because he is. Like we can stand firm, not because we're simply stubborn, but because he is worthy. And in that first message in chapter one, we saw that God stands with those who stand firm. For him. And then last week we saw that we can stand firm because God hears us. Like no matter what we're going through, when we cry to God, he hears our prayer. So when everything falls apart, our response should be that we fall to our knees. Remember, faith is being able to rest in his security. Like Daniel prayed and went to bed, right? though he was facing death. Faith is also being able to praise God for the deliverance yet to come, knowing that he will keep his word. And so this morning, what we're going to study is we'll find that we can stand firm because God is with us. God is with us. Through whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever you're facing, whatever test you're experiencing of your faith, you can stand because God is with us. He still today stands firm with those who stand firm for him. And so just like in chapter one and chapter two, Babylon has a way, just like Texas has a way of testing all of our theological convictions. Like we can say, man, I really believe that. I am so into that until we face that test, till life gets hard. The story in chapter three answers one simple question that's actually posed by a pagan megalomaniac king. What God will be able to rescue you? Like what God will be able 
to rescue you. Now, I want you to take note of a pattern that we see throughout the book of Daniel, but especially prominent in chapter 1, 2, 3, and then again in chapter 6. And here it is. You can look for it. Uh, God's people face a test. Right? Like, eat this food, bow to this idol, you know, interpret this dream. Don't pray to any God but this God. God's people face a test and it is met with faithfulness on their part. Like in this book, they stand firm. Daniel stands firm. His three friends stand firm, which results in victory for which they are richly rewarded. And of course, we face that same challenge and that same opportunity today. In Daniel 3, some time has passed between the events of Daniel 2. We don't know how much, right? But we know at least that Daniel links the two stories together for a purpose that is obvious from the very first verse. In in Daniel 3, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So after dreaming about an image, had this terrifying dream about an image, Nebuchadnezzar sets up his own image and then later commands everybody to worship it. It's like I think he missed the whole point of chapter 2. Like Daniel should have said to him, hey, this is not the application you were supposed to take from that experience. Like Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw this great image that terrified him of gold and silver and bronze and metal, iron, and then clay mixed with iron. And he told him, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, great king, you are the head of gold. Like you are the head of gold. And he said that Babylon, this gold kingdom, would be a powerful kingdom, yet a temporary kingdom. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar did not accept that he was only going to be the head of gold, only the ruler of a temporary kingdom, like he wanted it all. So he sets up this great gold image, 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, that truly symbolized his own pride and his defiance of what God had decreed. Like everything that God had revealed in his dream, he sets up this image to say, no, we have a different plan. We're going to go a different direction. It's as if he thought he could stop the vision from coming true, that he could thwart God's plan. Like this 90-foot golden statue was a just a monument to his arrogance. He then summoned the Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Pretty much everyone who was anyone was going to be there. Now, Daniel is most likely back at the capital running things while everybody else is on the plain of Dura. And so... I'm just going to say everyone here. He, he repeats a lot of information in this chapter, but he does so with a purpose. 
Like you will see the repetition of the musicians, the repetitions of, of the different leaders and the officials, the repetition of how the image was gold and how it was set up. Like it's meant almost to be comical because this king, like this earthly king, actually thinks he can outmaneuver Yahweh. Like what an absolute fool. And so verse 3, so everyone assembled for the dedication of the image mentioned 11 times. That King Nebuchadnezzar had set up mentioned seven times and they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. If you're there and you hear these words, you know what you're about to do, right? You're about to bow down. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the orchestra, all the nations of the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There, there should be a sense of incredulity for the reader. Like they should be thinking, like the people there are thinking, wait a minute, we just built this thing. Like we just fashioned it for Nebuchadnezzar and set it up and now we're worshiping it as if it's our God. Now at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. To denounce the Jews here, that word literally means to devour the Jews. Like this is a vicious attack. Note how they approached the king. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may you may the king live forever, right? Begin by kissing up. That's a good thing with Nebuchadnezzar. He has a bit of a temper. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the orchestra must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They either serve, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. It's like you're saying, King, oh great king, live forever. These are your boys. Like you put them in this position and now they've ignored you. Can you believe that? They've disrespected you. They refuse to serve your gods. In fact, they won't even bow down. Now, these astrologers were most likely rivals to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they were jealous and they were resentful of their exalted positions in Babylon. So here's the king's response. Furious with rage. Do you see a pattern there? For Nebuchadnezzar? Like, this guy needs to go into a program. He needs some counseling, right? Like, he just gets so mad, so hot, so fast, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before him, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Guys, tell me it's not true. 
I mean, surely these guys got it wrong. Is it true that you will not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, these three men had probably served this pagan king and this pagan nation faithfully for years without having this do not comply moment. And even when they had it, they they didn't try to draw attention to themselves. This was simply a quiet act of faithfulness to Yahweh, a quiet act of civil disobedience. Regardless, King Nebuchadnezzar is not impressed with their religious convictions. It's as if he's saying to them, come on, guys, what is the big deal? I mean, it's not like I'm asking you to worship my gods instead of your God. I am asking you to worship my gods along with your God. See? Win-win. Like, what's the big deal? Like, you can worship whatever God you want to worship in private. But when you're in public, boys, you better bow down to the image that I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the orchestra, he's given them a second chance. Surely you, you, you just didn't hear it. Like there was something like you were doing something and you were distracted. And so here's your chance. When you hear the sound of the orchestra, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Hey, good for you. All right. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then he gives this taunting question so confident in his power that he mocks any possibility of rescue. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Well, he's about to find out. Because they answer him, they reply to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And hear these words. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the guy with the temper right? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the world, the ruler of this powerful kingdom who can say in an instant, tear them apart and lay waste to their household. That's the kind of guy he is. And they respond to him, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. What? Like what conviction? Like that is, I mean, that is an out there answer. Your majesty, we feel no obligation to explain ourselves to you. You know who we are. You know from what nation we were brought. And you know who our God is. And we will have no other gods before him. Now, they could have said, oh, uh, I guess we just missed it and just decided just to bow, just to give in. And they could have justified it, right? Maybe they would have reasoned, hey, you know what? I know that we're bowing on the outside, but on the inside, we are standing firm. And God knows our heart. Like he knows that we're not compromising. Not not really, it's just this once. Now from the king's perspective, as he gives them this opportunity, this is a really easy decision. But from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's perspective, it's actually even easier. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Well, King, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer to that question is one that we settled in our hearts long ago. Like for them, rescue was not the answer 
obedience was, no matter what the cost. Like we will obey the first commandment even if it kills us. We will have no other gods before Yahweh. And so they say to him, verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But hear this, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God of gold that you have set up. I mean, once again, that is bold and brave. Like, where did that come from? Note that this was their immediate reply. Like, you never read anything in the text where they said, hey, uh, hold on one second, time out. Hey, guys, let's talk. <laughs> like, there was no conference time. They didn't need to think it over. Guys, they didn't need to pray about it. They never pray about it in this passage. They don't need to pray about being unfaithful to God as if he's going to give them a pass. I mean, their answer was locked and loaded. I mean, they were ready. They had already decided what they would do in a situation like this. They had already decided who they would be. They had already decided whose they will be. We will not comply. We will not bow. Now, as you read the passage, they don't pretend to know what's going to happen, right? In fact, they give two if statements here. The first if statement kind of imagines God's rescue, his deliverance. And the second if statement kind of imagines their martyrdom. Like They don't know what God's going to do. But this is, this is kind of what they're saying. Listen, we don't know what God is going to do here, but we know what we're going to do. We're going to stand firm. We only bow to Yahweh. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. Of course he was. And his attitude toward them changed. Like, once again, this guy has a, a rage problem. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. He had them bound because he didn't want them saying on the way up, uh, hey, we've changed our mind. You don't get to change your mind. You don't get a third chance. This is settled so these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king command, command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. And guys, if the story ended right there, it would be a great story. It would be the story that we read in Fox's Book of Martyrs, like countless stories over the last 2,000 years of the church where men and women have been faithful to the point of death to Christ. Of course, it doesn't end there. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, uh, Weren't there three men? 
that we tied up and threw into the fire? Right? Yeah. They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. So who is this fourth man? I mean, all we have in the narrative is a pagan king's observations. Like he, he's, he looks like a son of the gods. Later, he calls him an angel. Guys, the, the fourth man in this is what theologians call a theophany. It's a, it's a manifestation physically of the presence of God. More clearly, it's a Christophany. Like the person walking around in the flames with these three Hebrew men is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the son of the living God. Like this is Christ himself before his incarnation walking with his people. Like Christ did not keep them from the furnace, but he found them in the furnace. Like he did not rescue them from going into the fire. He met them in the fire and he brought them out. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Well, that's a change of tone and a change of tune, right? So they came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Like he praises them for defying him. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut to pieces and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. Like this is his go-to response for anything, (laughs) right? The toast is burned, cut to pieces, house becomes rubble. Like that's this guy. But then he says this, for no other God can save in this way. Guys, he answers his own question. What God can rescue you out of my hand? Well, there's only one who can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So how how does this historical event, because that's what it is. Like this story doesn't begin with once upon a time. Like this happened. So how would God want this historical event to be used to equip us to stand firm? Like how how does the author intend his readers to apply this to their own lives? Well, once again, just 
follow the pattern, right? We saw this pattern. God's people face a test. Like understand, in, in 2023, you will be confronted with the idols of this world because we're strangers in a strange land. This is not our home. Like we will be criticized by the idolaters of this world. Like I said last year in a sermon right around this time, we as Christians have to make peace with not being liked, with being thought of as the bad guys, with being thought of as unloving or unkind or uncool or out of touch. Like this is our kryptonite. Like we want, we want everybody to know that we're good people. But guys, the culture has so shifted that black is white and good is bad. So whose applause are you living for? Whose affirmation are you living for? Finally, we will be commanded to bow to the idols of this world. You see, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if obedience to Nebuchadnezzar meant disobedience to God, they gladly gave themselves up to the fire. And so guys, if obedience to anyone means disobedience to Christ, you have a choice to make. In any setting, every day, who will you follow? And can I just tell you, having been a youth pastor for years, I can think of countless stories of former students who graduated, went away to college, and immediately, day one, moment one, faced the test of their loyalty. Like I think just in the news this week of this hockey player who took a stand because of his faith and refused to wear a jersey promoting the LGBT community. Like he wouldn't wear a rainbow jersey for the warm-up of the game. He took a stand and was just ripped to shreds by the media. Like Nebuchadnezzar, no one appreciated his religious convictions. I think of the young Ethiopian man who wore a Jesus Saves t-shirt to the Mall of America in Minnesota, and the viral the video went viral because he's surrounded by security guards and yelled at and told he has to leave because people found that to be offensive. Like, do you stand by your convictions? If not, you know that by definition, that's not a conviction. It's simply a preference. We must bow to no one but God alone. Can I just tell you, there should be some postures that you reserve only for God. Like I told the last hour that I think for us men, there's three times where I think it's appropriate for us to kneel, right? When we're asking our wife to marry us, when we're down on our knees playing with our kids or our grandkids, or when you're in worship before God. He is the only one you should bow to. We should have reserved postures. We should have reserved praise, things that we say only of him. You see, God's people will face this test. And in the book of Daniel, at least, it's met with faithfulness. They, they stand firm. Now understand, God never promises that if you stand firm, you won't be thrown into the furnace. You may be still thrown into the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and a 
Abednego were sure, absolutely convinced about God's ability. Our God is able, but they were a little fuzzy about how God would choose to rescue them out of the king's hand. Like they were unsure about his personal will for them. Will we live or will we die? But they were rock solid sure about God's revealed will for them. You shall have no other gods before me. And so they decided, not in that moment, but long before. Like, I don't know what God will do with this, but I know what I will do. I will stand firm. And even if he doesn't, like at that point, maybe they're thinking about their hero in the faith, King Josiah, who was faithful, not just in his generation, but more faithful than any of the kings of Judah. And his reward for his faithfulness is God told him he would let him die as a young man on the battlefield and not see the destruction of Jerusalem. And so they're thinking, are we better than Josiah? Of course not. Maybe God will save us from unfaithfulness through these fires. Like what would you most like to be rescued from? Burning alive or being unfaithful to Jesus? Like I think of the words of Adoniram Judson, a missionary to Burma. He said, soon we will will be in heaven. Oh, let us live as we shall then wish we had done. Let me live my life in such a way that I'm thinking of that final day and live my life now in a way that I'll be happy on that day. God's people face a test. It's met with faithfulness, which results in victory for which they are richly rewarded. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing certain death, unless they compromise, they never asked God to deliver them. They just threw themselves into the hands of Yahweh. And as a result, their victory was won. Not in the fiery furnace, but in that very moment when they used those words, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will not bow. We all need to decide right now right here, what we will do when we find ourselves on the plain of Dura. Because faithfulness in those moments always equals victory, regardless of the outcome. By placing themselves in the hands of God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had placed themselves in the middle of a win-win scenario, securing themselves through the word, even if he doesn't. Either we would have victory or we will have victory. They thought either we will be rewarded or we will be rewarded. Like there's no way to lose in this situation. Like this was the theme, by the way, of a recent eulogy offered uh, by Jonathan Evans, the son of Dr. Tony Evans, in a message for his own mom at her funeral, as he was talking about wrestling with God, not healing her. Let's listen to what he says. Hear all of those prayers. Didn't you hear us? Where are you? Why didn't you do what we were asking of you? Because your word says, 
that if we abide in you and, and your word abides in us, then we could ask whatever we will and it will be given to us. Your word tells us that, that, that if we ask according to your will that you hear us, your word is, is, is telling us that in Mark 11, if you pray believing, you will receive to be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, make your request known. Where are you? I was wrestling with God the last few days because this was a great opportunity that we can tangibly see your glory. Everybody was praying, not only in Dallas, but around the country and around the world. People were watching. Where are you? This was an opportunity for us to see your glory. And as I was wrestling with God, he answered. And he said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory. Because just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. Because victory was already given to your mom. You don't understand. Because of the victory that I have given you, there was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to me. Amen. Amen. Guys, when you look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the object of their faith was not what God could do for them, how they could twist his arm. It was God himself. See, his ability was never in question. God is always able. And so for us, as we find ourselves on the plain of Dura, being called by this culture to bow to the idols of this world, will you respond with courage, with conviction, or with cowardice and compromise? You see, God never promised to keep you from the furnace, but he did promise that he will bring us out of those flames without our hair being singed or our clothes smelling like fire. In fact, to the very generation going into captivity, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God said these words, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire... You shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this God. And they bet their lives on him with three simple words. Our God, God is able I mean, think about those three words for yourself. 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through faith in Christ, Hebrews 7.25. Because Christ suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2 verse 18. I know who I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. 2 Timothy 1.12 And God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Jude 1.24 You see, church, God does not shield us from the hardships of life, from distress or danger, but it is in those valleys, in that time of loss, in that time of sorrow and brokenness, that the fourth man comes and walks with us. You see, the fourth man will always find his people. He has promised us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can stand firm because God is with us. Let's pray. King Jesus, high and holy, yet meek and lowly, you have brought us to the valley of vision where we suffer in the depths so that we might see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, we behold your glory. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess everything, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place where we see your glory. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest of wells, and the deeper the well, the brighter the stars shine. Let us find your light in our darkness, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, your glory in our valley. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we prepare our hearts to meet at this table of communion, I want you to think on this one thought. The eternal Son of God joyfully yielded up His life to the ultimate furnace for you. On the cross, He bore your sins. He took your punishment. He experienced your hell so that you could be brought safely without the smell of smoke into his father's kingdom. That's what this table preaches to us. Come when you're ready.
So as you stand there with the elements, just take a moment and close your eyes. Think about this question. I will follow Christ unless... Unless what? Is there anything that you're holding on to? Anything that uh, you would rather lose Christ than lose that? That's the case. Take a moment and confess that. And ask God for the strength to stand firm. Jesus stood firm. And on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Pour it out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's worship together. Let's pray together. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and blessing. Lord Jesus, you were slain and with your blood you have purchased men and women for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and you have made them to be priests unto our God. But we thank you for that. We thank you that in the midst of a captivity, you came down and walked in the fire with three Hebrews who were faithful to you. And Lord, we trust that you are with us as well, just as you promised. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And we thank you for that promise. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.